Welcome to Veg World Magazine Radio, the evolution of veggie living. And now your host, Steve Prusa. Hello and welcome to Veg World Radio. I'm Steve. It's great to be with you. And on today's show, our special guest is Will Potter. Stand by for that. It's going to be intriguing and information that we've got to share with everyone. So let's get right to it. Will Potter is the author of Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege. He's an award-winning independent journalist based in Washington, D.C., and his work has appeared in Washington Post, Rolling Stone, the Chicago Tribune, and Mother Jones, and he's testified before the U.S. Congress about his reporting. Let's welcome to Veg World, Will Potter. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here, and thank you for the work you're doing. And I know a lot of our listeners are kind of new to the veg movement, and this is going to be really eye-opening information. So I'm, I'm excited to jump into it with you and, and hopefully wake people up. Wonderful. So what inspired you to write the book, Green is the New Red? And maybe you can let our listeners know what you meant by this title. Sure. The title refers to really one of the darkest periods of U.S. history, where uh, during the Red Scare, people were persecuted for their political beliefs and their perceived political beliefs during the height of McCarthyism. And so by that title, I'm drawing a comparison between what's going on right now with the labeling of activists as eco-terrorists with that period of U.S. history. And it's not to say that what's happening today is exactly the same as what happened then, but I think by drawing that comparison, we get to see a little bit about how history is repeating itself <clears throat> and how these tactics have resurfaced throughout U.S. and world history to, to silence dissent. And really how I got involved in the issue is that my background is in newspaper and magazine reporting, and I was seeing this kind of rhetoric emerge in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then when I was working as a journalist at the Chicago Tribune, um, I decided to go out with a group of activists who were handing out leaflets in a residential neighborhood against animal testing. And we were arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. But really the turning point of that story for me was that a couple weeks later, I was visited by two FBI agents in my home, and they threatened to put me on a domestic terrorist list unless I helped them by becoming an informant and spying on protest groups. And that was really a turning point in my career. I mean, I was, I was shocked by how afraid of that experience I was, but after that fear started to subside, I became obsessed with finding out how this all happened. Um, and then over the years, I saw the expansion of this terrorism rhetoric, and I got more and more immersed in the issue and more uh, vocal about it as well. Wow, that'll do it. So they actually approached you to become an informant. That's right. Um, and uh, the types of things they were saying were, you know, revealing how much uh, research they had done on me and my family and my girlfriend at the time, uh, saying that I would not receive a Fulbright application I had uh, pending at the time, which is an academic grant through the government. They would make sure that my girlfriend at the time wouldn't receive her PhD funding. They knew all about my editors, my uh, who my uh, editors were, and they said they can put out a call to them. All these types of things that are fundamentally about making people afraid. And the intention is to make people afraid so that they cooperate with what these agents are doing. And I never thought about doing that. I never thought about cooperating in any way, but it certainly did scare me. Um, and, 
and you know, in a lot of ways, I was pretty ashamed by how afraid I was. I think in um, a lot of activist circles, there's certainly this posturing, like you know, if something like that happens, you shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't show any fear. And I was embarrassed that I, I mean, I was afraid. I didn't know what any of that meant. This was just a few months after September 11th, um, and what does it mean to be labeled a terrorist? Well, what laws are now in place in the United States that affect our rights to speak out about important issues and really put us in a state of fear and intimidation? Well, I think most people are aware of things like the Patriot Act, which was passed, you know, just hours and days after the September 11th attacks and rolled back some really important protections on surveillance and uh, FBI invasions of privacy into our lives and to process rights. But in my work, I've focused on a very specific set of legislation that's specifically targeting people because of their political beliefs. Laws like the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which is a federal law passed in 2006 that is so broad, it wraps up nonviolent civil disobedience as terrorism and a wide range of protest activity that threatens a loss of profit. That's the language of the bill, a loss of profit of animal enterprises. And I think that really is representative of the type of legislative efforts that we're seeing right now. Um, We're also seeing an expansion of that at the state level with new laws being introduced that specifically target nonviolent undercover investigators who expose what happens on factory farms and the animal cruelty that takes place every day behind closed doors to the upwards of 9 billion animals a year in this industry, and they're being singled out with new legislation to stop them. So who, are there organizations behind these laws, or what is the motivation? There are specific corporations behind these laws, and then also organizations in the form of industry associations. So for instance, with the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, some of the corporations that were supporting it were Pfizer and Wyeth, GlaxoSmithKline. These are pharmaceutical companies involved in animal testing that are concerned about the animal rights movement um, protesting against them because of that. There were also associations like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the egg producers, the pork industry, all these trade groups that come together and use their political muscle and their financial power to push for new legislation. And I think that financial motivation is really what's at heart here. Um, These laws are about corporations striking back against political activists who have been incredibly effective at threatening business as usual. I mean, with very little resources and very little money, these animal rights activists and environmentalists have completely changed the national dialogue about animal protection. They've exposed horrific abuse, and they're really awakening um, millions of people to what happens every day in these facilities. How are these laws different than the ag-gag laws, or is this just a federal version of the same thing? Well, legally, there's some really important differences in the language and how they're constructed. Um, The federal law is a lot broader in a lot of ways. Um, but then at the same time, these ag-gag laws are, are a different type of threat because they're specifically targeting undercover investigators, whistleblowers, and even journalists. That's something that, I mean, as a reporter, I'm particularly concerned about because it puts 
my source is at risk, makes people afraid of turning over footage to the media and talking about what's happening after they've videotaped it. Um, And it also puts someone like me at risk. Some of this legislation, the ag -Ag bills, even include language about possessing or distributing undercover video footage of animal cruelty. Um, And that's a direct attack on the First Amendment, a direct attack on uh, the rights of journalists uh, around the country. So there's some important differences between them, but I would argue it's really all part of the same trend. I mean, these are really efforts by corporations to silence their opposition, to operate with immunity and in secrecy, and to have no checks and balances on what they're doing. No, we could relate. As publishing a magazine that spreads, shares some of this information, I'm, I'm nervous someone's going to come knocking on my door. Well, and that's the whole point. And my message here today is not that someone like you would be prosecuted or that someone listening to this program or reading it would be prosecuted. But the danger is that fear. It puts that seed of fear in all of us to varying degrees where we have to stop and wonder, well, what about this? What about this next issue of the magazine? What about this blog post or this protest or this civil disobedience that I'm thinking of being involved in? And lawyers would call that a chilling effect. So in other words, it's not outlawing First Amendment activity, but it's chilling it. It's making people afraid and thinking twice about using their rights. And it's completely unconstitutional. So no matter how you feel about these issues, and I know People that are reading um, this magazine or listening to this interview are very sympathetic, I'm sure, but your friends and family who might not be, uh, that puts all of our rights at risk. So why should everyone be concerned? I mean, not just animal rights or environmental activists. Shouldn't we all be concerned? Well, you know, I always say that if you're not vegetarian, you're not vegan, um, in some ways you have a much more direct stake in what's happening with this legislation, because these ag-ag laws are about keeping you in the dark about the food choices that you're making. Um, You know, no matter how you feel about these issues, you have the right to make educated and informed decisions about what's best for you, what's best for your family, what's best for your health, and of course, what's best for the animals and the environment. And these legislative attempts are about removing that right from you, of keeping you from knowing what's actually taking place. So I'd say that if um, you know, you're know you not sympathetic to the animal rights movement, in some ways you have even more of a uh, vested interest in what's going on here. And now for other political activists, too, um, the types of legal precedent that are being set are directly applicable to other social movements. So you might not be out protesting for animal rights today, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be concerned about the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, because what we've seen throughout U.S. history is that when you single people out because of their politics, label them as uh, dissidents and subversives or terrorists, it never stops there. Those are tools that are expanded to other social movements as well. Yeah, I remember when war first broke out over 10 years ago, and being involved in some peaceful protesting about it and, and being labeled terrorist. I remember that was the first time I felt like I'm, I, I'm thinking I'm going to just stay home. I mean, 
it, it was scary to be late. And that was like after 9-11. So it was really scary to be labeled a terrorist just because like in the 60s, we were just speaking out against people killing other people. And Exactly. And we don't know the ramifications of that. And I think as a, as a culture, we still don't know. Um, you know, we're still learning about the extent of uh, government surveillance, harassment, and disruption of Muslim communities that have persisted since September 11th and have uh, heightened since then. We're still learning about the extent of government surveillance of protest groups. I mean, I think we're really just beginning to understand the scope of this rhetoric and the consequences that it has. And I think um, and that's one of the dangers here is that we don't really even know how this power can be used. Well, right. I mean, they came after you. I mean, you're not the only one they've came after to try to intimidate into doing surveillance. I'm sure there are people out there that are doing that. Uh, absolutely. And and that's really disturbing to think about. Of You know, I'm fortunate to have... Um, my work has gotten some attention, and I have a bit of a platform from which to speak and talk about these issues. Um, but, you know, how many other stories do we not hear about that either people are too afraid to come forward or they're so afraid that they actually end up cooperating with the government? I mean, we don't know the extent of what's taking place. There's been some great reporting, for instance, by Trevor Aronson uh, in his recent book, looking at the use of informants against um, the Muslim community after September 11th. And it was just shocking to see the scope of these tactics being used to turn people against their community. And I think this is a lot more endemic than we realize. Well, you give examples in the book. Um, like we mentioned, Green is the New Red. We're going to have a link at the end of this article or on the blog post on the page. Really recommend it. But can you give some examples of the reach of these laws and their application? Sure. So, for instance, with the uh, ag-gag laws, they are specifically targeting people who photograph or videotape what takes place on factory farms. Some of the new ones are even broader than that, though, and they're not even limited to factory farms. Um, anyone who exposes what takes place on any industry, whether it's fracking or Monsanto, genetic engineering, that could all be wrapped up under some of this legislation. At the federal level, the first prosecution under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act was not about violence or breaking windows or uh, stealing animals or anything like that. It was a group of activists in California, and they were arrested, um, charged under the law, and the government accused them of, among other things, writing on the sidewalk in children's uh, sidewalk chalk protest slogans, chanting outside of animal experimenters' homes, which is lawful activity, um, and protesting at times with bandanas covering their faces, which in many uh, social movements and protest groups these days has become more common as we learn about the extent of government surveillance. People don't want their faces uh, photographed or recorded in different government databases. So I, mean, I think that's just a couple of examples. On the environmental movement side of things, there's a case right now in uh, in Oklahoma, where two activists were protesting the Keystone Pipeline and fracking and a, a company that was involved in both of those things. And they went in this corporate headquarters and they dropped a banner, this enormous banner that had the 
this really nice uh, image painted on it, inspired by the Hunger Games movies. And as they dropped this banner, some glitter fell to the ground. And police arrested them, and they were charged with a terrorism hoax. And the prosecutors and police say that, well, we don't know that that was actually glitter. Um, some people at the time could have thought that it was a chemical weapon that was being dropped. And stuff like this is, I think, so silly, it's difficult to believe sometimes. But these two young activists are facing 10 years in prison. Um, so we're seeing this just continuation and escalation of these types of tactics against protesters. Since you've been working in this for so long now, how how have you seen on the streets, how has this affected activists as a, as a community? Or do you think for the environmental and animal rights movement that there are more people staying home out of fear? It's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think for a long time, there has been a lot of fear. Um, the widespread harassment and prosecutions of the environmental movement, for instance, in the late 90s, early 2000s, had a, a severe impact. It made a lot of people very afraid. The Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act certainly had a chilling effect on animal rights activists. But now, as time goes by, I think these movements are confronting that fear and growing and pushing through it. Um, we're seeing a resurgence of the grassroots environmental movement of the use of nonviolent civil disobedience, people willing to be arrested and lock their arms and necks together to stop environmental destruction, uh, the resurgence of undercover investigations and uh, grassroots protests and the animal rights movement. So I think there's clearly a lot of problems that need to be faced, and there's a lot of fear to be addressed. But it's inspiring to me to see so many activists out there doing that right now. Since 2006, when this law was enacted, how many prosecutions have there been? For the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, there's been about half a dozen. Um, the first ones, like I mentioned, were out in California with that protest activity. A few people have been prosecuted for releasing mink from fur farms. Uh, another individual was prosecuted for uh, an arson in the name of animal rights. And that's been, you know, for the most part, though, that's been the extent of the prosecutions. There hasn't uh, been this a wave of arrests or anything like that. So basically, it makes you just wonder, is it all based on creating fear? Because when we're in fear, it's easy to control. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, especially when we're talking about terrorism, central to that discussion has to be the idea of fear and the power of fear to control, like you said, to pacify, uh, to coerce the public. And it's a way of controlling without the quite heavy-handed um, rollback of First Amendment rights, for instance. So there are these attempts to pass this new legislation it slowly chips away at all of these things, but with that power of terrorism uh, rhetoric that makes people afraid. So based on prosecutions, would you say the law is being actively enforced? It, certainly. I mean, it has been. Um, you know, I think the industries that supported this legislation certainly would like a lot more prosecutions. Um, but, you know, even the fact that there has been 
a few is incredibly troubling. What can we do about this war of really what it is as profits over freedom? As a journalist, put an unwavering faith in the power of education. I think when we're talking about fear, the best antidote to that is sunlight. And the more sunlight we can shine on what's happening, the more we can pull it out of the darkness and take a hard look at what's happening, um, the braver we can be, the more confident we can be, and the more um, bold in how we respond to this. But that first step, in my opinion, has to be just examining and raising awareness of what's taking place. Beyond that, unfortunately, I don't have the answers, and I wish I did. Um, I wish I had a better idea of how we confront not just this rollback of our basic rights, but the environmental destruction, um, the violence and cruelty against animals, all these issues that are uh, central to my work. I think the starting point, though, through all of it has to be that education and public awareness, because one thing I've seen time and again is that when people find out about these issues, they're completely shocked and appalled. And when people find out about these issues in groups and in communities and public spaces, may be afraid of what they hear, but that fear really turns into anger and turns into motivation and protest um, to take action and do something about it. I think that's where we have to begin. What about Monsanto? We've covered GMOs and past issues of our magazine, and we're very concerned about it, as we all should be. What What is going on with our right to speak out against GMOs and protest Monsanto? I think that's a great point. I mean, there's been so much attention lately on Monsanto in particular and also the issue of GMOs. And I think it's important for people to realize that's really uh, intimately tied with all the issues that I report on in the general ag-gag laws we've been talking about. This new law that was a new bill that was introduced in Idaho, I think just yesterday, actually, um, is an ag-gag bill. It targets anyone who photographs factory farms, but sponsor of the legislation also indicated that he thinks it should be expanded to include um, genetically modified crops and people who use pesticides. So in other words, this is not just about targeting groups like Mercy for Animals, who did an undercover investigation in this state, which really prompted this discussion. The focus is also on genetic engineering. It's on the Monsanto's plural of the world, of anyone involving themselves in this type of activity that could come under public scrutiny. They're all trying to hide from this mounting public outrage. Uh, Yet another reason that we should all be concerned. So, Will, what are your plans for the future in spreading this message and maybe some work that you've got uh, coming up? Well, I'm really excited um, right now to have been selected as a TED Fellow for 2014, which means I'll be giving a a TED Talk in Vancouver in March and also um, have been really involved in the program. They did a, a lengthy interview with me on the TED website right now that I hope people will check out and share. And soon after that, I'll be heading down to Australia for a month-long speaking tour um, with over a dozen cities, which I'm really excited about because these ag-gag laws that we've been discussing are showing up in other countries. And this tour was really motivated by that 
um, and by industry in Australia saying they want egg gag laws exactly like we have in the United States. They're saying that if the U.S. industries are able to have protection from photographers and undercover investigators, then the Australian companies should have the same. So I hope through that speaking tour we can raise a lot of awareness about how these um, attempts are spreading internationally and we can start to shut them down. So I'm, I'm really interested in how these tactics are spreading internationally. I've done some, um, the book was just translated and released in Spain, uh, and they're going through all the same things as we are right now. And I think we can learn a lot by sharing information between countries and uh, really building international resistance and an international movement against this repression. Well, we'd love to stay in contact and continue and publish some of your articles too and get this great work out to our readers. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Oh, and thank you. And thanks to everyone for um, you know, learning about these issues and I hope to be in touch. Great. And the last question, my wife's a big fan of the other work. Are you related to Harry Potter? I wish I were. I mean, I think I would have a you know, those royalties checks would be significantly different if I was uh, part of the Harry Potter franchise versus writing about terrorism. Maybe that should be my next my next book. I should incorporate some wizards into the mix. I might have to do that. You know, maybe you could just cast a spell to get rid of these, these laws altogether. We wouldn't mind that. But hey, even, <laughs> even better. You know, Accio Civil Liberties, right? <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on The Veg World, and we hope to see you at World Fest over the summer, and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much for being here. Sounds great, Steve. Talk to you soon. Take care now. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Veg World Radio. I'm your host, Steve Prusak, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Veg World Magazine Radio. Join us each month for exclusive interviews with the movers and shakers in veggie living. Subscribe free at www.vegworldmag.com.